The legacy I want to leave is that love is the most important thing and that I've tried to, through my writings and through my being, to convey that and to teach how there how people can be more loving and receive more love because that's really the only thing that matters and so it's it's that legacy of creating the feeling of love i i I love it when i can actually see people experiencing feeling loved for the first time or again that's so beautiful it's such a powerful energy so i've I've wanted to do that through every vehicle of my lifetime, my my speaking, my writing, my living, my being. Hey my friends, this is Nishant and welcome to another episode of the Nishant Garg show. My mission is to help people get in touch with their emotions and feelings, connect to themselves and being a source of healing my job on the show is to sit with the world class experts to extract the practices routines and habits to help you live a fulfilled and abundant life every friday i share a newsletter which describes my new learnings these learnings can be in the form of new books i'm reading different podcasts and blogs i'm exploring to learn new topics and much more you can find the newsletter link at my website http://nishantgurg.me n i s h a n t g a r g me and today's guest is Daphne Kingmarose Daphne is a beloved therapist and relationship expert and the author of a dozen books about love relationships and living through crises she is the author of 12 best selling books about love and relationships including coming apart the future of love and the 10 things to do when your life falls apart she has been a psychotherapist six-time guest on opera partner in a publishing house studio painter and poet this conversation with daphne is very close to my heart we talk about relationships love connection finding true love and how does someone become aware of the origin of their trauma and their childhood issues and much much more please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with daphne Daphne, welcome to the show. Thank you, Nisant. It's an honor to have you on the show. It is a truly pleasure of mine to be able to have this conversation with you. So, I thought I would start with that you are a six-time guest on Oprah. Yes. <laughs> and and the San Francisco Chronicle dubbed you as the love doctor. Why did they call you as a love doctor? Well, Nishant, because I've written so many books about love. I love love. And I've written books about many aspects of relationship. The first one was a book called Coming Apart, which was about the ending of relationships, but there have been many that followed and and addressed so many different aspects of of our lives of love and connection. How do you define love? Oh my goodness, that's a big question. I think there are two levels of definition of it. One is that powerful divine energy that holds the universe together that's 
invisible and everywhere and powerful and in everything. And then as we talk about it, as we people talk about it, we often mean that intensity of feeling and regard that we hold for another person in a relationship, in a friendship, in a passionate relationship, in a marriage. So it's it's kind of a a version of that energy that's very personalized and that we feel very deeply about. I would like to ask you about, could you share any story that comes to your mind about your love life, if that is comfortable to you? <laughs> I could share many stories, actually. I guess a story, I guess I'd like to start out with the general umbrella statement that my life of love has been a journey of evolution from what is considered typically the usual form of love, which is being married. I was married. I have a child from that marriage. And then moving on through many phases of, you know, many expressions of relationship through living with someone to whom I was not married, having a relationship with someone who lived nearby, but we didn't live together, to having a series of very profound and gorgeous experiences that ran for a certain duration with a person. And I would say, I'm still being general here, but I would say that each of these love engagements was totally life-changing for me. There was something about the other person that was profoundly developed and that became a great gift to me. Makes me almost teary as I recall some of these connections. And vice versa, of course, there was something in me that was an incredible gift to the other person. And perhaps the most significant was a relationship of a number of years with a gentleman that I met while I was traveling in France. Very, one could say, casually one night, we both stopped at the same place for dinner. And many things happened in our conversation. There was a very profound connection there. And we each went our way. But I said kind of probably intuitively, but also kind of off the cuff to this man, do you think we'll ever see one another again? You know, I was 6,000 miles from home and I was in another country. And he said with great conviction, yes, I think we will. And I thought, well, you're full of it. (laughs) (laughs) But I can't remember now. It was like 20 years later that he found me again through the internet and i and i went to france to be with him we had a long correspondence i went to france to be with him and it was a very beautiful and very powerful relationship we're still connected we chose at a certain point not to go into a long future together because we both were were and are very grounded in our countries but it was absolutely breathtaking and romantic and profound and intelligent and passionate and life-changing. So would make a great movie, but I haven't written the film script yet. (laughs) 
I am curious to ask you what made you to decide to go to France after 20 years. Well, it what well, that's a lovely question and and an important one too because one doesn't just do that, you know, for no reason. As you may or may not know Nishant, I'm I'm a poet as well as the writer of these many books about relationships and I've always in my deepest self felt that my poet self was perhaps my you know my most real my most unexpressed and this man who was somewhat younger than me he also was a poet a very beautiful poet and so in our initial meeting there was an incredible sharing and awareness of this love of language that we both had and have and then subsequently when he reintroduced himself to me which he did because he found me on the internet we had this absolutely gorgeous correspondence in which we revealed ourselves to one another and so there was a lot you know in the in the early days of a romance however you're doing your romance you know whether you're walking down the college halls or whether you meet somebody at a coffee shop or whatever there are these things that we reveal about ourselves kind of layer by layer that keep showing another person who we are. And as we unwrap each of those layers, you know, we ourselves say, and the other person says, well, that feels good, or that feels familiar, or that feels beautiful, or that's touching. Or conversely, you say, well, now that you told me that, you know, I'm going <laughs> to head for the hills. So. It was through this really beautiful correspondence of, I think, almost a year that we were, we were able to reveal ourselves to one another in a very, you know, very profound and unexpurgated way. You know, we, we both took that risk and we both revealed ourselves. And as a consequence of that revelation, it felt very natural and appropriate to take the next step, the next step which happened to be 6,000 miles long. But nevertheless, it felt very organic to, to do that. And, and it was proved to be so after, after I did it. it. It was a very lovely, beautiful connection. How did he reintroduce himself to you after 20 years? <laughs> oh, you're going to help me write the film script. I see this. <laughs> I haven't. He wrote me a note on my email, and he he just said, "Do you remember a young man in Paris that you had a conversation with one night many years ago?" And I, I instantly did because, as I've said in many ways i also am a writer and it was a very it was a very affecting and beautiful meeting and after that meeting because i'm a writer 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 who never stops writing i wrote at great length about that meeting and how it had affected me and how remarkable it was and how many things this guy and i had in common and from my side at the time of our original meeting, had recorded, had written 
quite a beautiful story about it. So when he reached out to me and said, you know, do you remember a man you met? I, I thought, are you kidding? Of course I do. I, I've chronicled that meeting. I have held it in my heart. I mean, obviously I went on with my life and many other things happened in my life, but it was such a, such a touchstone experience that when he reminded me of it, of course, all my memories came back very clearly also. Daphne, in your work, you talk about that there are nine types of lovers. Could you describe some of the types of the lovers? And what kind of a lover are you? <laughs> well, Nishant, I have, to, I have to do a little editorializing on that. I've never... I've never been happy with the title of that book, which, as a matter of fact, is being re-released. The, the title of the book is The Nine Types of Lovers. But it's really about, I, I want to clarify this, and I think it will be helpful for our listeners, that it's really about personality types in love. You know, what kind of a person are you? when you become a lover or the beloved of someone, you know? And so these are personality types, not sensuous or passionate types. They're what kind of a person are you when you fall in love? So some of them are emoters, people pleasers, attention seekers, which is kind of a nice way of talking about narcissists, controllers, skeptics. Each of these types each of these personality types has a set of traits that, you know, are characteristic of them. And I don't know how far I want to go down this path, but I'll go a little bit farther. Each of these kind of constellations of traits that we have as a person come to us or become us because of what we experienced as children. And it's very, I mean, in this book, the book is soon to be re-released, and I, I think it's not even sure of the title. I think it's going to be called Love Types, The Nine Love Types. And so we experience things when we're kids that are very shaping of our personality. You know, whether you become a, tr a controller that needs to be in charge of everything, or whether you become an emoter that's always having intense feelings about everything. And so... Certain of these types do very well with others, other types, and certain of these types do very poorly with other types. I would say, and I, I've never actually liked this phrase, but I, cho <laughs> I chose it because I thought people would understand it, but the personality type called the people pleaser, which is a type that is generally empathetic, sympathetic emotionally aware and and wants to make other people comfortable and wants the experience of connection and i'm saying all those things cuz that's the type i am even though i don't like the name of it <laughs> but we all have to surrender something anyway and that's so anyway that's one type and that that type interestingly enough is a type that is often enjoyed and chosen by many other types because this person, which includes me, is someone who really 
values connecting with other people and smoothing out relationships and who holds the capacity for relationship in very high regard. Is there a specific, or so to speak, is there any personality type that is conducive to have a good relationship in our life? Well, all of them are, because all of them bring something of value. And, and I've actually made a beautiful map of that in the book. You know, what each one brings, which is, which is of great value to a particular other type. Usually there are one or two types that they do really well with. But it's like, it's like figuring out what type you are and then what type is the most comfortable and blessing type for you to connect with. Again, the people, I hate that word, but anyway, I, <laughs> I'm responsible for it, so I guess I have to use it. The people pleaser type, because this type so highly values relationship and connection, is, as I said, it's sought out, it's sought out a lot, and it's a personality type that really thrives on and enjoys relationships. But as you may imagine, there is a downside to each of these types, which I've talked about at length in the book also. And the downside of the people pleaser type, as you might guess, what do you imagine the downside of that type would be? <laughs> The downside will be that you never take care of yourself. You are just trying to be good and nice to exactly. us, not taking care of yourself, not exactly. doing self-care. Your self-love goes out of the window. Yes. So that's the real challenge for that type because they're attractive to other people and they enjoy other people so it becomes absolutely paramount and critical for people of this type to really attend to themselves to realize that you know the relationship with self is of absolutely critical importance and kind of maybe as a i don't know if i wrote that book right after the nine types but I've also written a book about self-love because of course this is the this is the one connection that ultimately really matters you know it's it's great to love other people and to have them appreciate you and to be connected but if you if you cannot dive deeply into the experience of yourself both in the sense of who you are and in the sense of what you need then there's a great there's that's a great failure of love so i i took the time to write a book really to teach about that you know what what is involved in loving oneself and caring for oneself which is which is each of our own greatest works when it comes to love then what can we do to love ourselves and ask others to provide us the kind of love we desire and we need it. Yes, we do. We so need it. And that, oh, that 
question touches my heart, Nishant, because it's so true. I I remember this was kind of what inspired me to write that book. Actually, I was traveling in Italy and I met this wonderful holistic doctor there and we were having a conversation and he said, you know, just about all the medical problems I see with people are really the foundation of them is in a crisis of self-love, you know, that people don't know how to take care. They don't know how to love. They don't feel worthy of their own love. So the first thing I would say about that is, you know, this is not something that just happens by happenstance. Some people are lucky and they know how to love themselves and some people aren't. It's like most of us have a wound, an historical, psychological wound that is very deep and and very affecting. And in most cases, until we start to pay attention to that, what happened to me? How was I shaped as a child? What were the what were the things that I was deprived of? What were the words that deconstructed me and broke my heart? What were the relationships that I could never be a part of? What was the abuse I endured? Until we actually start asking those questions, they're really kind of a who am I question. Who am I in all these ways? How was I affected? What what did I do? How did I develop as a person to compensate for all these things that happened to me? And so the the very first step in self-love, and it's actually a big one, it's a big one, is to, you know, start asking these questions of yourself, you know, who am I? What what shaped me? You know, what are the traumas and what are the beauties that shaped me? And so that first step, of course, is self-knowledge, and that's a that's a huge work. I mean, I think that's really a life's work in itself. We're all, you know, continually <laughs> learning more things about our I hope we are. If we're if we're paying attention, we certainly are. Then how does someone become aware of the origin of their trauma, their childhood issues? If somebody is not aware, they cannot do anything. So and I'm asking you because apart from writing books, you have worked with many individuals, many relationship, many many relationship couples in your entire career. How would you guide them through becoming aware of their issues that are coming up, which are unresolved? Yes. Well, it's awful and wonderful, Nishant, because how you become aware of what happened to you, what shaped you is usually through an experience of pain. It's usually through a broken relationship, the inability to marshal your talents and, you know, whether that's on a simple level of get a job or live your creativity or have relationships. And so there's some painful, it's like a, you know, a pebble in the shoe that says, wow, something's not right with me. I, I keep coming up to this place in my life and there's always pain there. 
or there's always failure there. There's always a lack of trust there. There's always an inability to move forward. So it's this pain in our life experience, which initiates us into this process of awakening. And it's sort of like, wow, what's that about? And and how did I get here? And of course, you know, the old saying, all roads lead to Rome. <laughs> when, <laughs> when, we, when we start digging around in our pain, all roads lead to our childhood, to what happened there. What exactly happened to me as I was growing up that has made me uncomfortable or incompetent or heartbroken or unable to to function in these places in my life. And so that pain, I always say the presence of the pain is the promise of the change. Because when we encounter that pain, then there's an opportunity to go exploring and to learn about what happened. And so then we see the things that affected us and we see the things that therefore continue to affect us. And once we become aware of them, as that saying I just said, the presence of the pain is the promise of the change, because that pain has initiated a search for self, then the person becomes acquainted with himself or herself or themselves. And then it's like, oh, okay, so what are the steps that I need to take to not have that happen again? What do I need to know about it? And what do I need to do about it? In working with thousands of individuals and couples, what commonalities have you seen which causes them to suffer in their relationships, in their loving relationships? That's a beautiful question. That's a sad question and a beautiful question. It's sad because it's, you know, universally true. And it's beautiful because it's a doorway to hope. And the thing that is most difficult for people is that they haven't done this work of knowing themselves. And so hundreds of things, hundreds of transactions that happen in a relationship, you know, from how you say hello to how you roll the toilet paper to how you talk to your children to, you know, what you think about your parents-in-law. These are all stimulated by childhood things. And the more you know about yourself, the less these things provoke problems. And as I was saying a few minutes ago, you know, this this journey of self-knowledge often begins with a personal crisis, and it's very often a relationship crisis. It's like, oh, okay, you know, now I'm now I'm facing a divorce. So now, what is it that I need to know about myself? And and once we have a basket of self-knowledge, we can then communicate more clearly to our beloved, you know, to say, this is upsetting to me because this is what my father always did. And I felt terrible. I felt diminished. I felt valueless. So please don't talk to me like that, which is so different from stomping your heels 
going out the front door, driving away in the truck with gravel spitting in the driveway, you know. And so the sub comment to your question is that what is difficult is that people don't know themselves. And the complaint that people make most often, I would say 99.95% of the time is we can't communicate. You know, that's kind of the catch-all. But what they're really saying is we don't know how to talk about ourselves and all these things that happened to us when we were kids are coming up and driving us crazy and we don't know what they are or what to do about them. Then what do you tell them to know themselves so that they can communicate better with their beloveds and partners? Oh, uh, that's a long journey, Nishant. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that that is the work of that is the work of psychotherapy, of counseling, of self-knowledge, you know. It's like it's a journey of learning to pay attention to yourself. It sometimes involves therapy, couples counseling, reading a million books, reading two books, you know, taking the time to invest in your relationship. It always it always blows me away, has always blown me away when, you know, people come in and they're having a terrible time in their relationship and they have complaints. He doesn't do this and she does that too much. And, you know, we're sick of each other. But when I ask people, do you ever sit down and just talk with one another? Do you ever just have a peaceful conversation? Do you ever just talk about what affected you in the day? Do you ever share your sorrows? Do you ever open up about your, your hopes and fears? And my kind of bottom line rule is, you know, the basic, the very basic time for meditation is 20 minutes. And I think if people can't somehow pause in a day to spend 20 present minutes with one another, that there's, there's no grounding for knowing one another and moving through those painful passages that reveal us to ourselves. So just to, you know, take all varnish off the surfaces, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work to know yourself. And mostly people don't bother to do it until something painful happens. And it's like, oh, well, now maybe I better pay attention. I often I don't know why this is coming up, but it's coming up, so I'll share it. You know, driving around suburban neighborhoods, and I'll pass through streets where the car, the garage door of the double garage is open, you know, and there are 20,000 things in there. There may not even be a car, but there are paint cans and lawnmowers and old games and cribs and baby strollers and boxes of dishes and grandmother's table, all this junk. And, you know, it's like, and then when people move, in other words, they make a life change, they say, oh my goodness, I can't believe all this stuff I had to look at. I can't believe all this stuff that was in there. I can't believe we put it in there without thinking. I can't believe some of it is really important and I haven't seen it for years. And I can't believe some of it is total trash that I need to throw away. 
And somehow that, for me, driving through suburbia, I don't live in suburbia, but I drive through there sometimes. You know, it's just like, that's a metaphor for, you know, how out of date so many of us are with ourselves. You know, we've just stacked up all this stuff, all this psychological clutter. And then the idea that, you know, you can move into the next phase of your life, which might be just the phase of being at peace. I don't even want to say just, but the phase of being at peace with yourself, of knowing who you are, of knowing how to communicate. It's like cleaning out the garage. You know, it's just a really, it's a very, it's a very significant undertaking. And it, and it can be done. I don't, I don't want to make it sound overwhelming. It can be done and it's, it's worth doing and it brings joy and it brings air to breathe. But it's not just something you toss off in a, you know, half an hour or an afternoon. It's, it's, a, it's a committed, concerted labor. Books do you recommend or do you used to recommend to your clients? Well, I have to be forthright and say that I recommend my books because, <laughs> I mean, it's interesting. Other books don't come to mind and I don't want to sound like an egomaniac, but I think that I have I've made a concerted effort to cover so many significant areas in relationship. You know, what breaks us apart? What are the things you need to know about yourself to fall in love? That's a book called Finding True Love. There's a, there's a lovely book called True Love, which is kind of a compendium of teachings of how to behave with another person. You know, so many people don't know that. How are you supposed to treat another person? And then, you know, I wrote the book about self-love. I wrote the book called The Future of Love, which is about how relationships are changing because of a spiritual dynamic to include many things other than just the, you know, the typical kind of familiar marriage relationship. And so, I mean, I've, I've covered the waterfront on these teachings. And, and basically, I think the things that people need to know to be in a relationship are they need to know about themselves. They need to know what stands in the way of their loving themselves. They need to know the behaviors that are appropriate when you're in a relationship. And if you're in a relationship that doesn't work out, it's important to be aware of what the dynamic was that caused it to not work out. So that's kind of my, the Daphne PhD program. <laughs> You have written about 15 books. So which book would you recommend to a listener if any one book, because sometimes we all get overwhelmed, which book to pick and which book not to pick? What would be that first book would you like to recommend? Well, I think for relationships, and this maybe sounds scary, but the book Coming Apart, because it teaches so thoroughly and carefully about why we enter relationships and what the underlying dynamics of them are. So I, 
even if you're not coming apart or you don't want to come apart, it's a great book to read because it really it really teaches about the nature of relationships. And the the other book for and and I think it's called Loving Yourself or Sometimes it comes out under the title, When You Think You're Not Enough. I don't like that title very much either, because I think we're all enough. We just have to discover that. But that's a book about self-love, and it's about the, the particular dynamics in our childhood that make it difficult for us to love ourselves. And there's a lot of teaching and understanding in that book that's very, just very basic and helpful and encouraging. In the book, Coming Apart, you discuss about why relationships end and why we enter into relationships. Yes. Could you describe about why relationships end? What are the main causes? And I'm asking you because we all have been there. I have been there. My relationships have ended in the past. Yes. And sometimes, or most of the time, we are just not aware why that is happening. So in your research and in your years and years of experience, what do you think could be the reason of ending our relationships that we are not aware of? Well, first of all, I think it's still true, although I believe now statistically in the United States, there are more single family, I mean, single adult family households than there are married adult family households, which is pretty boggling, isn't it? It is. But even so, traditionally, we've we've wanted to be in this marriage relationship. And the reasons for it used to be very grounded and economic, along with romantic, you know, that that marriage was a part of the fabric of society and it was supported by social norms and it provided comfort and protection and economic security for people. So that's changed some now. It's changed because women are in the workforce. It's changed because women are equal earners. A lot of women wouldn't say that, but you know, there is the potential for women to be self-supporting, let's say, even if they're not honored for their labor nearly as much as men yet. But that general reason, okay, you grow up, you get married, that's what you do. You have a family, you have a farm, you have people to plow the back 40 and bring in the cows at night. That, That primarily economic reason has shifted, but relationships end because there is, I'm going to sort of jump to the chase here, because there is an underlying dynamic in each relationship that is a a process, I call it a developmental process. It's something that is becoming of us in a given relationship. And when when that task, if you will, has been completed, it's like, oh, we came together to raise our four children, or oh, we came together so I could help you through medical school and you could help me develop a job that I wanted that I was afraid to get and wouldn't have gotten unless I was inspired by putting you through medical school. There are undercurrents and underpinnings to every relationship. There's a task that we are 
intuitively doing, and we don't know it. We don't know it when we get into the relationship. We don't say to the other person, well, I'm going to give you X and you give me Y and whoopee-doo, we're going to have a high old time. We don't say that. But in fact, there is this internal structure that is operating. It's just like, you know, fish look silky and mobile and fluid and dynamic but inside a fish is a very refined you know structure and bones and that that is that is the underpinning of the movement of the fish and so that exists in our relationships too and it and it's only after usually only after a relationship ends that you can see oh that's what we were doing i see you know you were helping me lay claim to my intelligence while I was helping you build a career, or we both wanted to have children and we did that together and now that's done and we don't have other things in common, so it's time to move on. Or, you know, something is going on that is the very most significant, though probably for the most of the relationship, invisible. We're drawn to people. We are ineffably drawn to people who possess the the nature and the talents and the psychological dynamics that can help us move to the next phase of our own development. And that's as different as individual people are so basically, in this life, we're all trying to become the most that we can be. Being alive is a, it's a process of evolution, of, of developing oneself. And so relationships, we, we enter relationships because somehow they contain something that will enhance us in this process of evolution. And falling in love and romance and passion, sexual passion, are all the things that draw us toward a particular person who will be an instrument in, in our discovery of ourselves. And that's kind of complicated and kind of simple. It's, <laughs> it's complicated when you, when you say it in the abstract, as I'm saying it, but it's simple when you look at a relationship that's ended and say, oh, well, I was in it because I needed to claim a sense of my intelligence, and he was in it because he needed my support so he could get his medical degree. Whatever the dynamic is, that's a very big answer. But I think maybe you were asking more simply, why do relationships end? They end because people fight. They end because people are bored and they don't have anything new to take up with one another. They end paradoxically often because they seek counseling, and people often seek counseling because they are at that kind of still point when there's nothing new they can bring to each other. And of course, often they end, you know, kind of visibly because somebody had an affair. Well, you had an affair, and so now I'm out of here. But the affair is usually the kind of tip of the iceberg indicator that 
something was really done here already. You know, something was completed. And so somebody, unthinkingly at the time, but said, okay, I'm going off in a different direction because my energy isn't being held here in this relationship anymore. If someone's relationship isn't working and they really want to improve it, then what they should look for in a relationship counselor or a relationship therapist? What makes a good relationship therapist? Oh, that's a great question. Because I love that question, Nishant, because people have a hard time finding that person. And so I have two criteria. One is look in the phone book and see if there's a name you like. It, It never works out to work with somebody who has a name that turns you off. So there's a there's a kind of <laughs> instinctual attraction. Oh, that sounds like a nice person, or that sounds like a nice name. They may turn out to be the witch of the world, but give it a whirl. The other thing is always ask yourself when you're in the presence of that person that you are, you're offering your sorrows to, and you're offering yourself to be a student and, and to be changed, to ask yourself, do I feel comfortable with this person? And I think a good measure of that comfort occurs in the very first session, but sometimes it takes a couple sessions and you say, oh, well, I was scared the first time and it didn't feel quite right, but now here I am again, here we are again for a second time and, oh, I'm relaxing and I'm able to hear what's being said and some things are landing in my consciousness in a way that allows me to see something new. So it's not supposed to be a jail sentence. You know, I'm going to go in there and be miserable and I'm going to be told all the things I'm doing wrong. And, you know, somebody's going to take my husband's side or my wife's side and I'm going to be crippled by the time I walk out of the room. There, there really has to be this component of comfortableness. You know, I feel I feel okay with this person. I feel good with this person. I feel like I can open up. And then, of course, I think there is a further criterion as you go along, which is, do I find myself changing? Do I find myself, you know, becoming more aware? So I would say the first one's kind of a joke about the name, although I have found many wonderful doctors through their names. So I kind of, and and many people have found me through my name. So I think it works some of the time anyway. <laughs> Earlier in our conversation, you mentioned about meditation practice, that is spending 20 minutes of meditation every day. Is there any other practice you could recommend to us to start doing this practice and process right away right now? Oh, lovely questions. Such lovely questions. I would say, yes, the practice of gratitude, because it is neurologically and spiritually and psychologically impossible to feel hopeless or lost or angry or scared 
no matter what the circumstances are, and I know so many people are in such agonizing circumstances right now, but when you pause, and I have a ceremony that I do at the beginning of each day, to really take note of those things which you are grateful for. And even in hardship, there are things to be grateful for. And so energetically, when you enter that space of gratitude, things shift. They, they literally chemically, biologically shift in your body. And so there's an opening for something new to happen, for a new attitude, for a new action, for a new puff of energy to take you to something. So, you know, I suggest one time a day, what whatever you prefer, the morning or the evening, to to give thanks, to give thanks for the miracle of life, the thousands of little miracles that we're all receiving, even in very dire circumstances, the fact that we remain alive and and have the possibility of things changing tomorrow is something to be grateful for. And it, it has a very profound, and as you said, instant effect. I think it's very helpful to write things down. I'm a writer, of course, so I believe that. But energetically, when you you take the time to have the thought and then to let it out of your body through your hand, it's like it secures it in your in your brain so that it becomes real and it gives you optimism and hope. So I suggest to people, you know, having a gratitude book or writing it in the same place every day, the repetition of the process is very valuable. Who comes to your mind who would have had beautiful, amazing relationship in their life? Hmm, that's interesting. That's very interesting. It could be from any movie. It could be a movie actor, a serial actor, anybody that you have encountered in your life. First comes to mind is my own parents, who had a very remarkable relationship. And that's not anybody that anybody can identify with, but I always feel a lot of gratitude for the way they engaged with each other and the the love that they they gave out of that to us interesting i i always feel when i see mr and mrs obama that they have a very warm and supporting relationship they speak well of each other when they speak they went into some deep journeys together, obviously, taking on the roles they did. For some reason, I'm thinking of Madame Curie and Marie Curie and her husband. I can't think of his first name. But they were great collaborators and great compatriots. And that's a very important part of a relationship. It's very, it's not terribly romantic, but it's, it's very powerful and very binding. We haven't talked about that really. The the power of commonality in a relationship. What, what, what binds you together when the going gets rough? What do you love together and what do you do together? Let's do it. 
Yeah. So that's that's very important. People who don't have anything in common, don't have any values in common, don't have any interests in common, don't have any activities in common. It's like, you know, it may be a passing passion, but that doesn't have the capacity to endure. I mentioned my parents. My parents both loved flowers. They both loved plants. And my father was always building beautiful gardens. And, you know, not like Versailles, but just lovely gardens. And my mother was an artist and she always painted flowers, painted plants. And and so I, who am their youngest of five children, I love it that both of my names are the names of flowers. Daphne is a flower, as you may or may not know. And Rose. I didn't know. Yeah, wonderful. And so I always feel like my name is this beautiful collaboration of my parents' love. And that's just a a wonderful thing that I bask in every day and feel gratitude for. What other characteristics or qualities your parents had that made them to have a beautiful relationship? They were both very deeply spiritually grounded. They both committed themselves to the work and the joy of being together and of having this big family with a really high sense of purpose, you know, like this is what we're here to do and we're we're doing it with our utmost and we're doing it with generosity and we're doing it even when we're weary with patience. And I, I think the joy part of their connection was this love of nature and love of beauty, which they were always cultivating in their different ways. And but I think the depth of it was their their spiritual grounding and that they felt that what they had come together to do was meaningful and important, not in a fussy, egotistical way, but just like this is what we're here on earth to do. And they supported each other incredibly in that work and in their in their own undertakings. So there was never selfishness or criticism or nastiness. There were hard times. There were many hard times because of our practical circumstances. And yet there was always the spirit of, you know, we're here to do this together. Do you remember any significant conversation with your parents while growing up? And that conversation would have had a positive impact on you while growing up. That's interesting. I I don't remember one in particular, but (laughs) interestingly enough, I'm getting quite a life review here. When you say conversation, you know, we were seven people sitting at a dinner table each night, and we, we sat down to dinner each night, and my father always said a prayer before the meal. And there were many conversations. And I think what what I remember was the grace of those conversations, that if one person was talking, the rest of us listened. And my father was an instructor in manners, but in a very gracious way, he'd always say, don't interrupt. 
so-and-so isn't finished, let her finish what she's saying. And so there was a, a teaching there of, you know, respect for one another. And it was always the conversation. The conversation doesn't begin till our mother is seated because we're having this meal together and because we want to honor her because she prepared it. And that was a big lot of work. And so we're going to wait to begin our conversation together. So that's beautiful. Yes, it was very beautiful. And, and there was, it was beautiful to, I was saying earlier about people coming together for 20 minutes a day, you know, people in relationship. And I think there was something so beautiful about at the end of each day that we came together at the table, you know, we came together at the table and we paused and gave thanks and we honored one another. You know, we listened. We, I was the baby, so I did a lot of listening. But, <laughs> you know, there was this sense that each person's contribution mattered and was worthy of respect. At what point in your life you realized that you needed to write about relationships and spending your whole life in this arena of relationships and helping others? It's so amazing, Nishant. I, as I told you earlier, I was a poet, and I always thought I would be a poet. And then a very dear, speak of significant relationships, a very dear friend of mine at one point, I was writing a fiction book, and I did write a beautiful fiction book, which you can see on Amazon, called The Magical World of Madame Metier. It's a spiritual fairy tale. It's very delightful. But at this time in my younger life, I was writing a novel. Every writer needs to try to write the great American novel, and I was doing my part. And a friend of mine who was a university professor came over to my house. We were sitting at my kitchen table and he said to me, you know, Daphne, you really need to write a psychological book because you know so much about relationships. And I was floored and I was insulted actually <laughs> because I thought psychological books were so boring and so in so many instances poorly written. Then out of the blue, some people came to me and said, yes, we think that's a great idea and we'll help you do it. We'll, you know, we'll help you format it and we'll become the publishers. And so it was really, it's like what I was saying earlier about you discover what a relationship is about when it's over. After I finished writing my first book, which was the book Coming Apart, I became aware of how much I knew about relationships how much I had discovered through my work with people. And to go back to the family dinner table, I think it's very interesting for those who are astrologically minded and those who aren't too, that every single person in my family has a different astrological sign. And so as a child, I was watching all these very different types of people interact, and I found it fascinating. I, I observed, you know, he's going to behave like this, and she's going to behave like this, and my father's going to say that, and my mother's going to do that. And I think from a very early age, 
I was observing this interesting crowd of people around me and that as as then I developed my psychological studies and began to work with people, these things became more apparent. And And of course, the more you practice something, whatever it is, learning about people or expressing your gratitude, the more accomplished you become at it too, because your your observations are expanded and your you know your ability to see what they mean is developed. And so yes, it was it's interesting. I'll add a little one more <laughs> personal note. I went to my 25th year high school reunion and when I was in high school, I was a writer and I was always writing poetry and da, 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 everybody. And I went up to one of my classmates and said, yes, isn't that wild that I became a therapist and I've written all these psychological books? And he said, no, he said, you were always explaining us to our to us when you were in high school. It's exactly what we thought you'd be. So what did you explain to them in high school? Well, I don't know. I guess I just. I just talked to them about how they were feeling or, you know, noticed how they were connecting with somebody. I didn't know. It's it's something that I was doing by nature without even being aware of it. And I thought it was really interesting that this man, you know, now a middle-aged man, said, oh, no, that's what you were doing all the time. So, you know, we are who we are whether we know you know whether we know it or not we are being who we are so indelibly all the time so i had a good laugh on that one <laughs> in the preparation of this conversation i learned that while writing your book 10 things to do when life falls apart you went to some destination to write this book where did you go oh Oh, that's a poignant question. I went to a very, very beautiful lake, not far. It's about an hour from here. And from Santa Barbara? And it, it has a myth around it, which some people said, this lake goes all the way to the other side of the world because no one has ever been able to find its bottom which I thought was fascinating. And it was a beautiful, I say it was, you'll know why in a minute. But anyway, it it's a beautiful lake and it had these lovely old cabins around it. And you could go, I could go and drive there and rent a cabin for, you know, a day or a week or several weeks. I went up there several different times for a week or so. And they had a beautiful old lodge. and they had a library in the lodge and it was interesting because I went in there and they had several of my books. So it was sort of like coming home. you know. And so I went there many weeks and I, you know, I used, there were little boats. I would row around the lake and there were beautiful lotus blossoms in a forest. And it was quiet. There were several times I was there that I was the only person there except for the caretakers. So it was very serene and you know, just a beautiful place to to write. But the other thing that's really interesting and sad is that about two years later, there was a terrible forest fire and it completely burned down that resort. So it is no more. 
the lake, of course, is still there, but there's no place to go. Yes. And to connect another point to this conversation, I want to ask you that whenever there is any partnership that ends, any relationship ends, there is that hurt, that sense of rejection that, you know, it's difficult to let go of that partner, that love. It's not easy. It's very hard. So Daphne, how should we, how should we show that courage and challenge to move forward and work on ourselves rather than beating ourselves? And what does that grief process look like? Yes, here's where that that practice of gratitude comes in, of course, because even when there is this excruciating loss, there is also much that has been received. And to be able to connect with that is very helpful. And if if you've been outright rejected by somebody, I hate you, you're awful, I never want to see your face again, that that's very painful, but it invites an investigation into why would a person say that to you and what does that say about that person? It says a lot about that person's incapacity to love and to be grateful, to be thankful for what happened. And if the rejection is very hard to get over, usually that refers to something that happened in your childhood that needs to be explored and investigated and worked through. And there's a lot of sorrow and anger about that. So that's part of that becoming aware of yourself process that often happens after a painful ending. And with that painful ending, that resentment automatically comes. We tend to resent another human being, that why the hell did they do that? And I can speak for myself. Six to seven years ago, I had a very bad breakup, and she she broke up with me. And it took me a year, almost more than a year, to come out of that pain. Yes. And now I feel very grateful for that pain that I became somebody else. I became a better man yes. after that. And I'm sure you investigating it saw that the the cruelty or the hardness was a characteristic and a, a quality of that other person and not something about yourself but that there was a pain there that was old and that it was important for you to look at is that true very true could you share some of the lessons you learned from your pain in your own relationships in your life, if you're open to talk about it? Yes, it's, it's good to, it's beautiful how you just talked about it. And it's, it's good to share this because I think when people are in pain, it always feels like it's going to be forever. You know, I'll never get through this. And I think that each of the, I mean, I could catalog them to some degree, but I think each of them represented, as you're saying, you became a better man. It's like, oh, at the end of this, I received a part of myself that I 
you know, thought existed in that other person, but suddenly it became it became mine again. And I think I I would say, well, I'm I'm going through my own history. I think the the pains were hard, for example, with my marriage, because that was a relationship that I had full-heartedly thought, oh, you know, now I'm doing this thing and it's going to be forever. You know, I, I entered it in that mind and heart set. And so discovering that it wasn't was very shattering. But then discovering what I became after that, it was after that that I that I entered my journey of becoming a psychotherapist and becoming this writer and you know, I never would have done that. I wouldn't I wouldn't have thought about all these things. I wouldn't have gone through these experiences myself. I would have been a bag of hot air talking about something that I knew nothing about. At other times, you know, for example, with the story of the man in France that I told you, that was very painful because it was such a lovely relationship. And yet circumstances made it clear that it couldn't be. And so saying goodbye to somebody that you continue to love, you do love them. There's nothing terrible they did or you did. You have this incredible compatibility and familiarity. And yet it's very clear from the loaded circumstances that you have to say goodbye. and. That's a very poignant kind of farewell. It, it's hard to say goodbye when there's, you know, anger and animosity, but it's also very painful to say goodbye when you still love someone and there's still a tremendous degree of connection, but you have a sense that it's correct that you do that. And I think many people, probably most of us, don't know how to say goodbye in love. You know, well, if we still love each other, why do we have to say goodbye? Well, because circumstances reveal it and because sometimes there is a larger thing that each person has to do that cannot be done in that partnership, you know, a soul's calling. And so when you recognize that, then there's sorrow, but there's also a very beautiful acceptance. I just want to add a little thing here for people who are listening to us that there's a really beautiful ceremony in the end of the book, the, the Coming Apart book. It is so healing. It's a ceremony to do with the person you've just split up with. Some people won't do it because they're too cranky or disgruntled or whatever. But if if you can do it, you know, not immediately, it usually takes some healing time, but if you can do it with the person that you've just ended the relationship with, it's a very it's a very soothing and healing and helpful ceremony that allows you to to move forward with a lot of grace and peace. I just wanted to mention that for the people who are listening in case they're in need of that kind of thing. Yes, thank you so much, Daphne, for this beautiful conversation. And I want to ask you, where can our listeners find you online? Yes, on on my name, with my name, 
Daphne at DaphneKingma.com. I left out the rose. That's my website. And the books that I've been speaking out, speaking about are on there. And so that's where you can find me. And the books are also on Amazon, of course. They're listed under my name. And I wanted to, to just mention in passing to Nishant the the book we spoke of briefly called The Ten Things to Do When Your Life Falls Apart, which is a book that so many people are reading and needing right now as their circumstances are so perplexing and difficult. That That's kind of out of the love field, and yet it's been so encouraging for people who are going through the various kinds of hell that so many people are going through right now. It's on the website also. Yes, I will put all the links in the show notes. And my last question for our conversation to you is, what is the legacy you want to leave on this world, Daphne? Oh, wow. You're the master of beautiful questions, Nishant. <laughs> I, I think the legacy I want to leave is that love is the most important thing and that I've tried to, through my writings and through my being, to convey that and to teach how there how people can be more loving and and receive more love because that's really the only thing that matters and so it's it's that legacy of creating the feeling of love i i i love it when i can actually see people experiencing feeling loved for the first time or again that's so beautiful it's such a powerful energy so i've I've wanted to do that through every vehicle of my lifetime, my my speaking, my writing, my living, my being. Love is all what we need, and love makes the world go around. So thank you so much, Daphne, for this amazing, beautiful conversation. Oh, thank it you was again. such a perfect joy to be with you. Thank you. <laughs> thank thank you. you. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode today. If you did enjoy this, please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or you can visit https colon slash slash nishangarg.me N-I-S-H-A-N-T-G-A-R-G dot me. You can also share this episode with your loved ones to help them live a fulfilled life. You are not alone in this journey. We all struggle in life. There is no shame in talking about it. I go through my highs and lows. I get depressed and these practices help me in living a resilient life. You can also do this. You got this. Don't judge yourself. You are doing the best you can. And thank you so much again. Okay.